You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn East. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's great to see you and great to be with you this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Philippians, and today we're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 21, and I want to ask that if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, whether people are gathered with us physically or they're online, Lord, we know your word is powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword, and we know that it brings both great conviction and great comfort. So, Father, I pray for people who are, who are overwhelmed right now, who are discouraged, who feel listless or depressed in their spiritual walk, that they would find great comfort and take great comfort in your word by the power of your spirit. And I pray for people whose hearts have grown cold, maybe stumbled into or even thrown themselves into sinful habits and patterns, Lord, I pray that your word would be a sword that would bring deep conviction and lead to change and true freedom. I pray for all of us this morning that we would be built up, that we'd be encouraged to press on as we examine this. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's said that everyone gets their 10 minutes of fame, and I got mine early. I got mine when I was seven years old. In 1998, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game was being played in Cincinnati, which was where I grew up. It was at Riverfront Stadium, and I was recruited at the age of seven to be a part of the Disney pre-game, pregame show. Uh, it wasn't just me. It was about 500 other little leaguers, but you know, I remember like it was just me. They selected me. They saw my skills on the field and they recruited me to come and to perform this pregame show. And we were told, we were promised that as a reward for doing the show, uh, not only would we get to watch the game, but we would get to meet all of the all-star players 
and get all of their autographs, which for me at the age of seven, that was the greatest thing imaginable. The night before the game, I couldn't sleep. It felt like Christmas in July. And even that day, the ride down to the stadium, I'll never forget it. We did our show. I think we nailed it. I think it was a great performance, especially for being seven. And when we finished the show, we were escorted out of the stadium and put back on our buses and sent home. Uh, We didn't get to meet any of the players. We didn't get any of the autographs. And looking back on it now, I don't know what intern made the promise to 500 little leaguers that they would get to meet all of the all-star players and get their autographs. But logistically, just thinking about it, that would be impossible. Nevertheless, there were a lot of very sad kids and some very angry parents. And so as a consolation, the Reds, because there was people were heated, the Reds agreed to send a couple of their players out to our Little League Association and to sign autographs. And you got a ticket. It was either Chris Sabo or Barry Larkin. I already had Sabo's autograph multiple times. But Barry Larkin, he was the shortstop for the Reds, all-star player. I mean, he was... He was the man, and so the thought of getting to meet him, getting his autograph, was pretty awesome. So the day comes, we waited in line for hours. I think the entire city showed up to get these autographs, and I brought my glove that I loved. It was my favorite glove, and I was going to have him sign, like, right on the inside to Kevin from Barry Larkin. I, was, I had it worked up, waiting, I'm rehearsing it in my mind, and I get to the table, and there's Barry Larkin. I'm going to watch him on TV, and... I said, hi, Mr. Larkin, could you sign this to Kevin uh, from Barry Larkin? And I don't remember the exact response he gave, but I remember the gist of it where he said something like, how about I just sign my name and you'd be happy with it? <laughs> and I was, you know, that's, that's great. Whatever you want to do, if you could just sign it, it's fine. But I was devastated. And again, looking back, I mean, I get it. Barry Larkin, all-star shortstop, forced to sit out in the August heat and sign autographs for thousands of people because some intern made a mistake. But I'll never forget that feeling where Barry Larkin, I held him up here. I mean, I idolized him, and I feel like he toppled off of the pedestal. And looking back on it all, it's such a valuable lesson. It's a lesson that we learn again and again in life, is it not? That we need to be careful about idolizing people about elevating them to some superhuman position. It's a, it's a really valuable lesson to remember that all people are people. We're all filled with the same glory, and we all, and we all share in the same sin and struggle. And I think this truth is especially important for us to remember when it comes to someone like Paul. I mean, Paul, he wrote half the New Testament And it's tempting when we look at Paul's life to not just put him on a pedestal, but put him on this superhuman pedestal. And to think that he was sinless or that somehow he had totally and completely arrived spiritually. I mean, Paul at times, he seems almost like a superhero of the faith who's got the cape blowing in the wind. Especially when you look at passages like the one we read last week, when he shares about his heart. Philippians 3, 8 through 11 Paul says, I mean, just hear what he's saying about himself. He says, I count everything, everything, not just my job, my possessions, my house, but my relations. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that I may know him, saying I want to know him, I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's powerful. And I think if we're honest, that's pretty convicting to read from Paul, especially when we look at our day-to-day lives. It's, it's very tempting to read a passage like that and to think, yeah, that's not me. And that probably will never be me. I'm not there. I don't think I ever will be there. I'm just not wired like the way Paul is wired. He seems so far out of reach. And what I love about today's text is Paul takes his superhero cape off. What I love about today's text is Paul gets very, very honest with us. I mean, after saying, I want to know him, I want to share in his sufferings and become like him unto death, I want to count everything as a loss that I may know him more. Verse 12, he says, but not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Paul, what he's saying here is that's what I want and that's who I want to be, but I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. I want to know him better. I want to know him more than I do right now. And, you know, there are still things in my life I don't like. There's still sins I struggle with. There are still parts and aspects of my life that haven't been fully conformed to Christ. And so while I desire to be the man I just listed, I'm not there. I haven't arrived. I mean, this is Paul saying this. This should be a real encouragement to anyone here who's feeling like, man, I haven't arrived. I'm not, not where I would like to be spiritually. This is Paul. Paul saying, I want to know him more. Paul, who heard the voice of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul, who, who visited the third heaven. He's saying, I want more of his power. I want to experience his resurrection power. This is Paul saying it. And Paul, he healed the sick. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. He radiated such spiritual power that people would swipe his handkerchief and then they would go and use that to heal other people. And yet Paul is saying, but I want more of his power. I haven't arrived. You can, you can hear this sense of incompleteness in him and maybe even a sense of, of discontentment. And I find that a bit encouraging because the truth is we have never fully arrived spiritually this side of eternity. And I know a lot of us know this, most of us know this at some level. There are some Christians who think that we attain sinless perfection in this life, but I think most of us, because we try to be a very honest church, we know that's not the case. And so at some level, we know we never fully arrive on this earth. And yet, how many of you, how many of us live with this sense that we're constantly playing from behind, spiritually speaking? How many of you right now feel like you're not where you're supposed to be in your walk with Christ? Anyone here feel like, you know, I'm actually a bit ahead of where I expected to be? I'm outpaced. No. I'll never forget, I read this quote by Eugene Peterson. It was in a Christianity Today article, and it was kind of a side note, but he said, people don't feel they're very good at the Christian life. People don't feel they're very good at the Christian life. 
And as a pastor talking with many of you, those of you online, that's the sense I get a lot, that we live in this perpetual state of discouragement. And what I love about this passage is while Paul has some some discontent, he doesn't come across as discouraged and he's definitely not defeated by the fact that he hasn't arrived. Instead, Paul, he takes this reality that he knows who God's making him to be and he knows where he is right now and it doesn't discourage him, it actually leads him to press on. And the main charge that Paul gives in today's text is to press on. Verse 12, he says, press on. Verse 13, he says, strain forward. Verse 14, he says, press on. Verse 15, he says, grow into maturity. Verse 16, he says, hold fast. I mean, again and again and again, he's saying, I'm not there and I know you're not there. But don't let that discourage you. Don't let that defeat you. Press on. Persevere. That's the nature of the Christian life. And as, as I think about that, I don't know if there's, there's a much more timely word for us in this moment than to press on. Very much there's this temptation to want to disengage, to pull back, to sign off. We're weary, we're worn out physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And Paul's saying, don't give up and don't give in. Press on. And in verse 13... He tells us how we press on. It's a very famous passage. And if you've been memorizing a verse each week with us, this is the verse I want to encourage you to memorize. He writes, he says, this is how I press on. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made up my own, but one thing I do. And then in a classic preacher move, he gives us two things. One thing I do. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And with the rest of our time together, I just want to talk about those two things. I want to talk about what Paul means by these things. And we will look at the rest of this text under two headings. The first is what I would call strategic forgetting. And the second is a focused striving. A strategic forgetting and a focused striving. To press on, to make progress, to persevere Paul says we have to be able we have to be able to forget some things. And I call it strategic forgetting because I've seen this verse I think misused and I've seen it used in ways that can actually be very hurtful and harmful to people in the past where people think that what Paul is saying here is it's like he's advocating for a complete and total memory wipe, just like a reformatting of our brain. But we know that can't be what he's advocating for because one of the most common refrains in the Bible, one of the most common commands in the Bible is to remember. Think of Psalm 77. Remember how God delivered us in the Exodus. Hebrews 11. Remember all the heroes of the faith. Every week we take part in the Lord's Supper which is a meal of remembrance. I mean, just a few verses earlier, Paul's listing out his achievements, spiritual achievements before Christ. And so he's not calling us to this blanket amnesia. He's not saying that our past is irrelevant or that our pasts are are irrelevant. What he's saying is something a little different. And it's important we make this clarification here because I do know Christians who they've got a lot of stuff in their past and, and they want to say, but none of that matters anymore. And in a sense, that's true. 
In a sense, it's true. You don't have to go, you know, repair all of that's happened to you in the past to experience the joy and forgiveness and peace of Christ today. But it's a half-truth. And the older I get and the longer I pass to, the more I see that our families and our stories and our experiences, they matter. And who we are today is very much shaped by who we've been in the past and what we've gone through. And I mean, we see this in the Bible. We see it again and again. We see sins and patterns of behavior in the book of Genesis handed down. Lying and deception from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. We see adultery handed down from David to Solomon. That our stories, they matter. I mean, science in our day and medicine is, is showing us again and again how much past trauma can affect our lives today. And so I don't want us to have a simplistic reading of this verse. It's simplistic to say, well, just blanket, forget everything and just be here or look to the future. He's not calling us to forget everything. He's calling us to a strategic forgetting, a selective forgetting. Now, there are two areas in particular of our lives that Paul is saying we need to be selectively forgetful about these things. And the first is our past spiritual achievements. I think the, the thrust of what Paul's saying here, when we keep it in context and really press in, I think Paul is saying, I forget what is behind. I refuse to look back on my past acts of faithfulness and grow complacent. I refuse to look back on the things that I once did and kind of rest on my laurels and all of those achievements. And for Paul, that had to be a temptation. I mean, think of everything he did. He planted countless churches. He saw hundreds, thousands of people come to faith. He did all of these miraculous things. And on top of that, he suffered in so many ways for Christ. He's been whipped and beaten and flogged. He's been imprisoned. He's been stoned. He's even been shipwrecked because of his faithfulness. And if there was anyone who could say, yeah, I mean, I haven't arrived, but I've done pretty well for myself when it comes to following Jesus, it'd be Paul. It'd be easy for him to say, look at all that I've done. I can take it easy, work on my golf game a little bit. But he says, no, I refuse. I forget all of that stuff. And what Paul means, and I think this is what he's getting at. Paul, he's saying, I refuse to live off the fumes of yesterday's obedience because God is at work in the present. I refuse to live in the past because God is at work now. And so I am not going to coast on what I've done or what he's done through me in the past. I don't know about for you. I know for me in high school, countless people would tell me, enjoy this time. These are the best years of your life. Anyone hear that when they're in high school? These are the best years of your life. And I remember thinking, really? It's like algebra, acne, awkward conversations with girls. This is the pinnacle of life and it's all downhill from here? Next 50, 60, 70 years are just going to be disappointing? We know people, I know people, who are now in their 40s and they live like that's true. They're like Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite, if you've seen that. They constantly look back. Those were the great days. And it's so sad to me because life is today. Our lives are taking place right now. 
And there are many Christians, I think, maybe many of you. When you think about your walk with Jesus, you look back on past times with nostalgia. And maybe those were times, you know, when you were 19 or 23 and your life was just different and you were doing crazy radical things for God and now your life is overwhelmed with responsibilities and you look back and you think if I only I could go back to then that's when I was really risking things and you know I I don't want to diminish those kinds of memories but at the same time if we spend our days looking back we miss out on what God has for us in the present if we spend our days longing for you know four days gone by we miss out on the fact that our God is alive and he is active and he is at work in our world and in our lives right now. And we miss it. We miss what he wants to do in us and we miss what he wants to do through us. Forgetting what is behind is remembering God is at work now. And with every new season and stage of life come new callings, new challenges, new opportunities. So Paul's saying, don't live off of yesterday's obedience. God's at work now. He's at work right now. And just as we can't live off of yesterday's obedience, we can't, so also we can't, we can't die because of yesterday's failures. This strategic forgetting, it's forgetting our past achievements, but it's also forgetting our past failures. If we want to move forward in our spiritual lives, We cannot live looking back at all of the things that we've done wrong or all of the ways that we've failed or come up short. I mean, Paul, if anyone knew this, Paul oversaw, was present as Christians were being murdered. He actively persecuted the church. And Paul knew if he was going to move forward, he couldn't be looking back and just feeling miserable again and again about those things that he did. I know so many Christians, they, they live in this perpetual cycle where they, they sin, they feel miserable for their sin, and then they feel miserable about themselves, and then they get highly discouraged, and they reach for something to bring them comfort, which is usually oftentimes the same sin or a different sin. And they get in this cycle of just feeling guilty, feeling ashamed, and then running right back to it. I think a lot of the reasons that the American church lacks power right now is because that cycle is present in a large number of American Christians. They live in a perpetual state of feeling guilty and feeling ashamed. And Paul's saying, if if that's where we are, we can't move forward. If we're dying every day because of yesterday's failures, we're going to die every tomorrow. I remember Nora Allison once, she put it so simply. She said, keep short accounts with God, for he keeps short accounts with you. Strategically forgetting our past failures means keeping short accounts with God, because we know he keeps very short accounts with us. And what I mean by that is he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. When we confess and repent of sin, the way we as human beings often operate, someone might confess or repent of something but we still hold on to it and we keep it in the filing cabinet. We might actually use it against them at a later date if need be. God is not like us. He's not like us. When we repent, we are are forgiven before that because of the work of when we repent, we can lay it down 
and we can move forward. Now, it's, it's hard to keep a short account with God if you're stuck in a habitual sin or addiction because you know you, know you repented of it, but you know that tonight, tomorrow, next week, you're going to find yourself in the same place. And if that's you, you, you're in this place. I think every Christian experiences that at some point. Might be for a couple of days, might be for a couple of weeks, might be for 10 years. But if that's you, what happens is you're being robbed of the joy of your salvation And it's really hard even mentally to get to a place where you actually experience the freedom and the joy of salvation. I think of David. Do you remember Psalm 51 where David cries out? He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because I don't feel any joy right now because of my sin. And so if you find yourself stuck, find a friend that you trust. You don't have to tell everyone. Find someone. Just say, I need help. I need someone else to step into this moment with me. If you don't have any friends, come talk to me. I'm not going to judge you. Talk to one of our pastors. If we're going to move forward, we have to know how to let the past be the past. We can't live off of yesterday's obedience. We can't die because of yesterday's failure. And the reason Paul says, I forget what's behind is because he's looking forward to what's ahead. The reason we have to engage in this strategic forgetting is because we can't look two ways at once. We're not, we're not wired like that. We can't say we're focused on the future if we're constantly looking back, thinking, I wish I was like I was as a Christian 10 years ago. I wish I didn't do this yesterday. I wish I wasn't struggling with... If we spend all of our time looking back, we can never look forward. And in this passage, we learn one of the real secrets of Paul's spirituality is that unlike many Christians today, Paul spent most of his time looking forward. Yes, he looked back at the cross and celebrated and rejoiced. But what drives him forward, what moves him forward, he tells us here, is he looks forward. He looks ahead. It's not just God's past acts of faithfulness, as incredible as they are. It's also God's promises and the hope God has given him. That's what I mean by a focused striving. We're not just striving after nothing. We're striving after something in particular. We forget so that we can can set our minds and our gaze on something specific. And Paul tells us what it is in verse 13 and 14. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because I'm laboring, I'm toiling, I'm straining towards the goal, the prize. It could also be translated the finish line. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that sounds wonderful, but what does it mean? Paul, he's looking, he's looking to the day when our salvation will be fully and finally realized. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Salvation in the New Testament is spoken of the past, present, and future tense. And Paul, he's looking forward to the day when his salvation will be fully and finally complete. We know this because in verse 20, 21, he, he lets us in on how he thinks. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What enables Paul to press on in the midst of adversity, imprisonment, is because he knows the day is coming when he will sin no more. He knows the day is coming when he will be fully formed to the image of Christ. He knows the day is coming when he's going to get to see Jesus face to face instead of in a mirror dimly and through smudges. He knows that day is coming. And so he has this forward-facing, future-oriented hope that leads him to forget what is behind because he knows that that's his destination and he wants more than anything to arrive there. Now, this is different than a lot of motivation we've been given before in the church. You know, often in the church we'll say things like, you know, Jesus has done so much for you. What are you going to do for him? Or, or we sing a great line, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. And I don't want to minimize, and that line's true, but it's incomplete. Paul didn't just live his life looking back and saying, I was such a miserable sinner, but God forgave me, and so now I better obey him. Paul looked back and said, I was forgiven when I was at my worst. And my life's kind of amazing now. God's given me his spirit. He's called me into his mission. But it's going to get even better. Because I'm going to see him. I'm going to be with him. And I'm going to be like him. We all know this in life, right? Like you, Looking back doesn't offer a whole lot of motivation for moving forward. Something that they say in church fundraising, they say people don't like giving to need, they like giving to vision. We don't like just looking and saying, all right, where are all the gaps? We like saying, where are we going? And great visionaries, they give us this inspiration. This is where we're going. And once you have that destination in mind, and once you have the focus upon it, then all of a sudden it gets kind of easy to know what needs to be rearranged in your life to get there. You make it work. You rearrange your schedule or your budget. You change your behaviors if the vision is clear. For Paul, his vision is clear. He's saying, I know where God's taking me. I know where he's taking the world. And I want to start preparing myself, getting ready, living in line with that right now. The problem is it's hard. It's really hard to do that. It's hard to keep that vision. It's hard to not right now be overwhelmed by the news and conflicting information. I don't even know what to think of two weeks from now, kids schooling, job. And yet Paul's got this fixation on the future. And remember, he was in prison. He had stuff right then and there too. It wasn't like his life was going great. And he's like, I can't wait. I mean, he was wondering, am I going to die next week or am I going to be set free? Do I get to go plant more churches? Or is this the end of the road for me? But Paul was able to live knowing whatever happens right now, I know what God's promised. And so I can hold the tension. I can hold the tension between where we are right now and what he's promised to be. And I know where I fit on the the timeline. Martin Luther, he once wrote, he describes this so well. He says, this life right now, this life, it's not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. This life is not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. 
The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. And if we could learn to live with that, you know, in a society marked by instant gratification, if we could learn to live knowing what's real now is not always going to be real. What we experience now, that's not the way things are always going to be. God has made promises, and God never breaks his promises. For Paul, this is what keeps him on track, keeps this focus to the future. And that's really important if we're going to understand the warning in verse 18 and 19, where he talks about, he, he, he says, many of, of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul's not talking about people persecuting the church. He's talking about people who were in the church that Paul says they're actually enemies of Christ. And you kind of wonder, like, how is he going to describe them? What makes someone an enemy of Christ? And then Paul says, well, their end is destruction. And the reason why is because their God is their belly and they glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. And it's an intense passage. But what I find so interesting is Paul doesn't say their minds are set on sinful things or wicked things. He says their minds are set on earthly things. And it's challenging. I mean, I felt like Jacob with this passage. It's like, I'm not letting you go until I get the blessing out of this because this just feels a bit like a curse. What is the blessing here? I mean, so many of us, the majority of our days are spent on earthly things because those are responsibilities God has given us. You got family, you got jobs, you got responsibility, you got the church. And I really, I don't think Paul is calling us away from any of those things. He's just pleading with us to not set our minds fully upon them. He's just pleading with us to not be people who are so fixated in the here and now, whose values and pursuits all terminate on the here and now, the things of earth, that we never think about what's to come. He's calling us to not be Christians who live and say, thank you for forgiving me, but who do not regularly pray, amen, come Lord Jesus. He's saying, fix your eyes above the here and now. God has promised wonderful things. And when you lose sight of that, when you set your hearts and your minds on things here on earth, it's like it leads to spiritual, he says, destruction. So in closing, I want to put two questions before you. Number one, what do you need to strategically forget? What do you need to strategically forget? And it could be, you know, looking back and thinking, man, I was a better Christian back then than I am now. Or maybe it's a sin or an action or something that's taken place that you live with deep regret over. What do you need to forget? And the second is, where do you need to strive? Where do you need to strain? I love that word. He says, I strain forward to what's ahead. He doesn't say I stroll. I mean, strain is an intense word. It makes me think he's sweating in this. I'm straining for it. And where do you need to strain? 
one last verse in this passage I want to read to you. Paul says in verse 16, he says, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And I've always been fascinated by that verse. And I think what Paul is saying here, because earlier he says, if you're mature, think this way. If you're not, well, try to think this way. He says, only let us hold true to what we attain. What he's saying, I think, is he's saying you don't need to be on my level. You don't have to be where I'm at. But wherever you are in your journey with Christ, be faithful there. Whatever things you know to be true, whatever things you know to be true and and beautiful, cling to those. Whatever things you know to be sinful, say no and turn from them. But I think he's offering a real word of hope that if spiritually you're a teenager, don't be mad that you are not a wise old spiritual sage. Don't be frustrated that you haven't reached the finish line if you've been following Jesus for 10 or 15 years. It's a life's work. But this isn't an excuse. He's saying, but wherever you are, be faithful there. Live up to what you've already got. I think a great application for us is if we have things in our life that we know they're either sinful or they're unhelpful or harmful, and we know it, let's not get lost in everything else. Like, what is God calling us to deal with today? What is he calling you to attend to today? And as we come to the Lord's table, table is such a place to be encouraged to press on. I mean, it's a place where we remember that Christ has taken our sins. And so in that, it's a place of strategic forgetting. When Christ said, this is my body broken for you and my blood poured out for you. It's a time where we remember we're not defined by our sins. This is also this meal. It's not just an act of remembrance. It's calling us forward to the day that Christ has promised us when all will be well and when we will feast with him. And so this isn't just something that brings peace to our conscience as much as it is. That It's also something that stirs our imagination for what God has promised us. And so if you're here and you're a believer, we encourage you to take part in communion. You can get out your communion cups or communion you brought with you. If you didn't bring it or you didn't grab one, there are some in the hallway right outside these doors. But I'm going to pray and I encourage you to take part as you feel led. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.